The Earth is bathed in a flood of sunlight, a fierce inundation of photons. On average, 342 joules per second per square meter. 4,185 joules, one calorie, will raise the temperature of one kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. If all this energy were captured by the Earth's atmosphere, its temperature would rise by 10 degrees Celsius in one day. Luckily, much of it radiates back to space. How much depends on albedo and the chemical composition of the atmosphere, both of which vary over time. A good portion of Earth's albedo, or reflectivity, is created by its polar ice caps. If polar ice and snow were to shrink significantly, more solar energy would stay on Earth. Sunlight would penetrate oceans previously covered by ice and warm the water. This would add heat and melt more ice in a positive feedback loop. The Arctic Ocean ice pack reflects back out to space a few percent of the total annual solar energy budget. When the Arctic ice pack was first measured by nuclear submarines in the 1950s, it averaged 30 feet thick in midwinter. By the end of the century, it was down to 15. Then, one August, the ice broke up into large tabular bergs, drifting on the currents, colliding and separating, leaving broad lanes of water open to the continuous polar summer sunlight. The next year, the breakup started in July, and at times, more than half the surface of the Arctic Ocean was open water. The third year, the breakup began in May. That was last year. Kim Stanley Robinson is the author of the Mars Trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. His latest novel is 40 Signs of Rain. Welcome to the show, Stan. Thanks, Rick. Stan, how much of what you just told us was fact and how much was fiction? It was all fact up to the um, last couple sentences. Um, the, in the 1950s, the ice pack of the Arctic was 30 feet thick, and, and just recently, around 2001, they measured it again, and it was 15 feet thick. So um, the poles seem to be especially sensitive to the global warming. Could you tell us a little bit about the problems of science and capitalism? That has a lot to do with this book, doesn't it, your new book? Sure. Um, well, I, I think of them as, as two vast figures like Uncle Sam or uh, Paul Bunyan. And, I mean, it's best to think of them in a kind of myth sense uh, so that you don't get completely bogged up, down in, in detail. That uh, science is uh, interested in uh, understanding the world in ways that will ma uh, be useful to human comfort and survival and uh, capitalism is a kind of a, a pyramid scheme by which a few get rich off of the efforts of the many and the two are, are just fundamentally opposed and I think are the two the last two left standing in terms of the great powers and so little little powers like democracy or um, environmentalism need to um, kind of uh, cluster under the skirts of the the big power that's most on their side and and so I think one of the one of the secret or really obvious histories of the world that we're in the midst of right now is this um, titanic battle between science and capitalism for who will actually call the shots. I've always thought of science as this kind of beneficent bureaucracy that's slowly uncovering reality and what we learn is used to better the state of human existence. But that's not what's happening now, is it? Yes, I do think that is what's happening, actually. I, I like to think that um, despite the, the kind of theatrical and obvious uh, spectacles of uh, capitalist success and, and things going wrong, all of the, 
the stuff that gets into the news, that underneath that grinding away is just what I sometimes call the great work, that the great work goes forward. And it has to do with um, thousands and even millions of individuals pursuing their projects that are good, positive projects that link together, that need funding, and so they're part of the world system too. But they're out to um, make life easier and to uh, create s- sustainability or permaculture. And and I think all that stuff is still going on, uh, sometimes against some pretty heavy resistance. But I like to look at the bright side. Let's talk about your new book, 40 Signs of Rain. It begins with uh, Charlie and Anna Quibbler, who are um, working within this giant bureaucracy. Tell us a little bit about these two characters and how they fit within Anna within the world of the NSF, the National Science Foundation, and Charlie as a science lobbyist for the Senate. Sure. Um, I'm a novelist, and even though I end up uh, talking uh, about um, matters of policy or uh, philosophy, science, uh, these kind of things that we began talking about, ultimately what I'm interested in are the kind of stories that these situations generate. And in fact, I'm drawn to those situations because they generate the new stories, the stories that are about what's just breaking right now and are really stories that couldn't have been written 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So I, I, as a novelist, I think of all the current world situations as basically story generators, and I'm looking for the good ones. And um, I lived with my wife in Washington, D.C., just after we had our first kid for four years. She was working for the Food and Drug Administration at that time. But I since have had a fair amount of contact with the National Science Foundation, and that to me is a very interesting institution. It's rather small on the Washington, D.C. scale. It only has a $5 billion a year budget, uh, and it funds basic research and tries to stay out of um, policy, politics, uh, the broad questions of our time, and just fund basic research in the sciences. But to me, it, it might be, it, it's an interesting point at which to prime the pump or the tail wagging the dog. If there's any one spot where you can begin to move something as huge as the federal government, I think maybe um, science is the place to look. So I got interested in NSF and, and um, um, having close contact with the scientists on a daily basis, being married to one, the, the, the natural comedy of of science and humanity trying to coexist is uh, evident to me pretty much every day, and it's fun. It's a uh, it's a material. It's what a novelist looks for. So uh, this was the kind of inspiration for Forty Signs of Rain. Your character in Forty Signs of Rain, Charlie Quibbler, is a stay-at-home dad, mm-hmm. and the beginning of the book reads more like a domestic comedy than a science fiction novel. Is this based on your own experiences? Well, yes, uh, it is. Um, I like domestic comedy, and I live a domestic comedy every day. Um, The thing is that I've changed everything in the way that a novelist has the right to do to make the story work better. I've had to uh, collapse down events. I have what is in effect my experiences with my second son occurring in Washington, D.C., when actually he spent his entire life in California. So I've mixed and matched the, the, the experiences of my own life into what seems useful to making that particular novel work. 
And you know, there's a, a little bit of um, uh, anxiety involved with that or a feeling of exposure. But on the other hand, everybody does it. Every writer has to work out of their own experience. And sometimes you do it more, more obviously. Sometimes you do it less obviously. But it's always there. And sometimes it is very uh, liberating in a way to just write about it more directly rather than less directly. So that after finishing a novel that was set mostly in the you know, 14th and 15th century, which is what I had done before, it seemed like really a lot of fun to come back to now and write about America right now. Um, it's, it's, the feeling of anxiety comes from a sense of exposure that everybody knows America right now. Everybody has strong opinions about it. When a novel comes out that's about America right now and says, this is what it's about right now, this is telling the story right now, and then also the, about the day after tomorrow, as the, the movie title has it, then essentially you have no um, cover in exotic materials. You're working naked in a sense in that you're writing about a subject matter that everybody knows intimately. And then it has to work as a story or not. It doesn't have any exoticism um, to give it an extra level, level of interest. Uh, that's one thing I did notice about this novel. It didn't really read like a science fiction novel to me. Well, I wanted to play a game there, and, and the game would be, aha, Kim Stanley Robinson is doing a mainstream novel about contemporary America, and this is how this is sort of the science fiction take. If you're a science fiction writer were to write about America right now, what a natural thing it is. It's uh, We are living in a science fiction novel every day, and so it seems like a science fiction writer has an advantage in terms of angles. And then what I wanted to do, of course, and I don't want to blow any surprises, but as a formal thing, I wanted to have people convinced they were in one kind of a novel and then have a trapdoor open underneath uh, them, and suddenly they fall into another kind of a novel. And, of course, there's no particular surprise that it's uh, science fiction, pure as, pure as can be, and, and have that be one of the aesthetic pleasures of reading this novel as you're going along thinking you know what kind of thing you're in, and then, boom, it turns into something else. This is the first novel in the trilogy, is it? It is. Have you completed the other novels yet? No, I have not. I'm, I'm about done with the second uh, volume, and uh, I've had a great time with it. I, I'm, I'm happy with the second volume. The third one has a lot of uh, opportunity for invention. <laughs> <laughs> Your theme in this novel, scientific theme that is, is uh, global climate change. Yes. Why did you choose that as a subject? Well... I was following the the sort of science news level of um, latest breaking things in the sciences, and we've had several um, massive paradigm shifts or or uh, new sciences uh, sprung on us in my lifetime. Uh, the tectonic plate revolution, that kind of thing. Well, just recently, and I mean within the last five years, the ancient climate, paleoclimatology has come to the fore and because of the Greenland ice cores we suddenly know the last 120,000 years of, of climate on this earth in, in an amazing amount of detail uh, because they got really good cores right down to the bottom of the ice cap in Greenland and that's 120,000 years of perfectly layered snowfall. Uh, each one of those layers has its own air that can be analyzed and so what they've discovered is that it seems like the world's global climate has two basic sets. And one you could call warm-wet, and that's all that humanity has ever really known um, in the in historical time. And the other is cold, dry, and really windy. And the, about 11,000 years ago, there was a period like this called the Dryas period, um, named after a little 
plant and its pollen that helped the earlier scientists to identify it, where suddenly it was a really cold or like a small but um, violent ice age. Well, now what they're beginning to realize is that those things come on within a period of years so that it isn't like the old climate change, the global warming. 200 years from now, it'll be three degrees warmer and that'll be a disaster. Well, when you think about that as a novelist, you can't find the handle. And and even as a human being, you think, well, maybe it'll be all right. I mean, 200 years, three degrees, how bad could it be? And it actually could be quite bad, but it's hard to imagine. But this abrupt climate change, as it's now called, uh, and there's a complete new field of scientific inquiry called abrupt climate change. Um, it happens within two or three years, where suddenly it goes, especially in Europe and around the Atlantic, it goes from being like it is now to as it is in an ice age, except dry. We, we think of the ice age as having lots of precipitation because eventually the ice caps build up, but apparently it, it, it's a matter of drought, cold drought, which is a, a kind of a nasty combination. I have to ask you if you've seen the movie The Day After Tomorrow. Well, I haven't. Everybody's asking me this, and, and I want to see it. I'm, I'm not avoiding it. I've I seen the previews, and they look great. The visuals are of uh, Manhattan iced over are just, as, just what you want out of science fiction movies, as far as I'm concerned. But I have read the script, and, the, and uh, it was sent to me by some uh, acquaintances in Hollywood, and it's pretty dire. I mean... It, a shooting script for a movie that is just a bunch of big visuals is really a, a kind of an awful written document. <laughs> and I don't... And people are... It's getting bad reviews, and that's too bad. And I, I'll suspend judgment until I see it, but um, it, it's not sounding too good. I'm wondering if you could talk to us. One of the things I found most interesting about the book was it brought up this idea of uh, the character... Uh, exemplified by the character of Frank Vanderwall, who's a really fascinating character. He's not really likable, but he's not unlikable either. He's a, a guy, a cog in the NSF bureaucracy who slants some of the decisions so that things that will help him make money don't get funded by the NSF and are forced to seek funding in the private sector. I wonder if you could talk about how this effect on science... Well, I, I did a couple of panels at uh, NSF to help them out in their uh, Antarctic Artists and Writers Program, which I had taken part in. And they usually do recruit their um, panelists from people who are veterans of their program so that they know what's going on and they have expertise. And that's what makes a panel more than just a subject of judgment, so-called. And uh, when I was thinking about a novel uh, about NSF, I mean, it's, it's a bureaucracy. It's meant to be boring in the novelistic sense. Everything's meant to be done by committee and take years and be completely on the up and up. So I thought, well, how could you scam this system? And it didn't take uh, much thought to realize that um, the panels are completely manipulatable and it's essentially an honor system. And if you wanted to keep a proposal from getting accepted, uh, funded by NSF, which would if you get funded by NSF, then there's a certain amount of entailment in terms of uh, monies received so that you are making a semi-public project, and, um, and the NSF will make a claim on the eventual profits of what gets funded. And so that's a good thing. I like this. But if you wanted to privatize and make sure that you got all the profit off of one of these neat new biotechnical innovations that are being developed every day now, you wouldn't want to have NSF funded. You want it kept in a private sphere and hopefully a private sphere that you already had stock in. And everybody in sciences, the, the individual 
uh, disciplines within the sciences are small enough and specialized enough that everybody tends to know everybody. So the conflict of interest rules are fairly strict. I mean, if they're not your family, if you're not working with them, if you weren't their uh, thesis advisor or student, you pretty much can stay on a panel and judge these people. And it's just uh, understood that you have to try to be objective. So the scam is, is clearly obvious and there. And, and a lot of scientists do not make anywhere near enough money to um, um, make them financially secure. They, they, get, they make a salary, but they don't make a ton. And the, the people who do are in entrepreneurship-type situations where they're there to make a company that will make an absolute killing on the stock market or in, or in selling a, a new pharmaceutical. So there's a temptation and there's an opportunity. It's sort of like a detective novel situation. And I've met tons and tons of scientists, and uh, I love them dearly, but there is a, also a certain uh, symptom or a, a social ineptitude where they're brilliant in their realm, but in the social realm of getting along with other people or even understanding other people, they can be very much like um, Mr. Spock. Um, Mr. Spock is a perfect image of the scientist at the myth level, this uh, pretense of objectivity with an intensely emotional core. I mean, that's it's perfect for all of us, but it's particularly perfect for scientists. So, so Frank von der Waal comes out of all those kind of thoughts and observations. One of the things I like most about Frank as a character was that he evaluates everything in terms of his scientific specialty. He's standing in an elevator and he's thinking about the Velt. Yes, yes. Well, I, uh, to me, this is the funniest thing of all, and you see this in a lot of chemists, which is my wife's field, is an attempt to try to analyze human behavior in terms of their specialty so that they can get a handle on it and maybe do a little bit better in the social realm than they often have when they're young. And sociobiology is the science of trying to understand human behavior, you know, in, in evolutionary terms and, and understand us all as primates that, you know, two million years ago were uh, knocking around East Africa and try to... Uh, learn from the what we now understand of our animal nature to try to guide them in modern American life, which is, of course, uh, impossible in some ways. I mean, I actually think it's not a bad avenue. If you could, if you could um, do it right, it might teach you a lot. It might be very helpful for making a healthier and happier life. I think it's best to live like you're um, a primate on the on the savanna about two million years ago in terms of uh, personal happiness and. You know, just better. Um, you'll be more relaxed. <laughs> but uh, but you know, to try to do this too uh, rigorously is, is bound to lead to um, grotesque errors. And uh, and so I've had a lot of fun with Frank in that regard. One of the things you also talk about, I have to ask you, is re- D Street really the the Cliff Street? Somewhere in San Diego? Yes. Encinitas has a D Street that is the one uh, closest to the ocean, parallel in the ocean, and the next one in is E Street. So that gives you a little bit of pause. And um, it is in, in the fact that in the 1880s, right after they had established and platted this new little town, a big storm came in and the, all the cliff on the, on the seaside, A, B, and C streets fell into the ocean. This is a little bit scary, especially in terms of what you point out about Washington, D.C. as being founded, essentially, in the unwanted swampland between the states. Yes, yes. That's another good story. I, I love these funny stories there. The, you know, that nobody wanted uh, New York or Philadelphia to become the capital back when the Constitution, when they were deciding where the nation's capital would be. 
And so they fought about it, and the southern states were worried uh, already that they were going to be marginalized by the more populous industrial states up north. And so, um, you know, the, Mar Virginia convinced Maryland to give up some land is what it came down to, as far as I can tell. And it was the worst land that Maryland could find. They just looked around Maryland, and they said, what's the crappiest 10-by-10 uh, 10 10 plot we have? And um, they gave that to the nation. That became Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah, and the 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 mall, the beautiful mall with its new World War II memorial is only 10 feet above sea level, which I did not know. And in the maps of it in the 1860s, it's substantially not there at all. It's just a, um, part of a swamp or part of the Potomac River where it got wide. So that the tidal basin is just the tiny remnant of what was a, a much bigger swamp. And I didn't know all this, but I, it was really useful for a global warming novel. <laughs> I imagine so. Now, this novel was a real change of pace compared to your previous novel, The Years of Rice and Salt. And I want to spend a couple minutes talking about that. You wanted to call that book The World Without Europe. Yeah, that's right. That was its working title and may still be the best title, um, A World Without Europe. Uh, everybody dies in Europe at the time of the Black Death, or say 95% of the people in Europe die either from the plague or from the starvation afterwards. And then world history is traced out in a sort of science fiction novel style of a chapter devoted to a different uh, uh, generation running through the centuries to about 50 years past now. So it's one of these long um, chronicles. And... Uh, tries to describe what would have happened to world history if the Europeans were completely gone right at the point where they started taking over and um, before the scientific revolution, before the renaissance, before mm, colonization of the rest of the world and see uh, just as a kind of a, uh, a way of generating a new story of what would have happened with them gone. In this novel, Islam and Buddhism are the primary religions of the world. I was wondering if you were thinking about the world today when you were writing about it back then? Well, I sure was, but uh, the world today is not the world today. I mean to say I wrote this book before 9-11, so it had a very different uh, context than what actually uh, the world it was published into. Um, maybe uh, there are still enough continuities that uh, it. I think it still speaks to the situation quite clearly, but um, yeah, there's an examination of Islam in there, how it came about, what it, what it, uh, what it's like as a civilization, and what would have happened if if it and um, China were the two great world powers that ended up uh, more or less uh, equal in their power, so that there wasn't a chance for just one civilization to conquer the rest of the world, but was uh, a diversity created by no one civilization having enough power to do it. And that was the main thing I wanted out of that alternative history was that I didn't just replace Europe with something else. China would have been the obvious one, but Islam could have happened too. But I wanted it to end up where there was never a, a world uh, colonization. And so that drove the, the kind of history I wrote. And one more question. I have to ask you about the Mars Trilogy. There's been some interest, I guess, in Hollywood in the Mars Trilogy? Well, it's in development, as they say, at the Sci-Fi Channel for a, um, a series, in effect, that, um, so that Red Mars would be done as a 10- or 13-hour, um, once-a-week series through some winter. So that's its status right now. Okay. We've been talking with Kim Stanley Robinson. His new book is 40 Signs of Rain. 
his most recent paperback is The Years of Rice and Salt. Thanks for joining us, Stan. My pleasure, Rick. Hi, Santa Cruz, my beach town. We're speaking with Kim Stanley Robinson, the author of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. His latest novel is 40 Signs of Rain. Kim, let's talk about the science fiction of politics. Or maybe the politics of science fiction. No, yeah. tell, me, tell me what you mean. Well, politics is a fertile field for science fiction, and it gets a lot of treatment. Uh, unabashedly, I believe, partisan treatment in your new novel, doesn't it? Well, yes, I think so. Um, it, for um, It's really too bad that the Republican Party has tried to pretend that global warming is is not existing because it gets in the way of business or is inconvenient because now it's really beginning to look like there is no denying it. And the, the scientific case and the temperatures, the, the, the stuff we're seeing every day is, is beginning to be incontrovertible. So it's a, a foolish to be on the wrong side of science. In the long haul, uh, it'll get you, and, and I think that's probably a good thing. I applaud that. But in, in, more generally, it's very true what you say. Uh, science fiction, the way I would define it, is fiction that's set in the future, and so here's what happens. You you set a story in the future and within it embedded either explicitly uh, in the text or else implicitly by what happens. There's a history, and that history runs from that future moment back to right now. And so one of the things, one of the pleasures of reading science fiction is that you are uh, deducing the history that got from our moment right now as readers to the world that you're reading about in the text. And a text that can give you some surprises or can make things especially clear uh, is one of, that's one of the satisfactions of reading science fiction. And so uh, a lot of science fiction uh, it doesn't really have very much science in it, and yet that doesn't disgrace it. It could be the story of how a religious leader from South Korea managed to convince millions to give up their money and turn him into a local um, dictator figure. I mean, that doesn't have any science in it, and yet if, if it uh, showed that South Korean leader taking over the entire world, it would be science fiction. It would be set in the future. And uh, that's science fiction as much as any tale of uh, robots or um, technical innovations. So uh, in essence, what happens with that kind of a definition of science fiction is that every single story is political to the extent that it expresses a theory of history. It's saying this is how history works. These are the factors that are important. If we do this, we'll get here. If we do that, we'll get there. And these are always political statements because they're talking about um, how people together make, make history. So it's true. Science fiction is political. And what you can do is all kinds of thought experiments. What if we all uh, got together, everybody on the planet who are uh, pure anarchists got together and made a colony on the moon and said, we're going to run it as a pure anarchy. You know, maybe we're only talking a couple hundred people out of the six billion, but we have a colony on moon that runs according to the laws of anarchism. And Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed is not very far from that scenario. So um, you get thought experiments in how political systems would work. And, of course, everybody's free to criticize the thoughts that you have. You could always say, well, it wouldn't happen that way at all. And then that creates another uh, science fiction story. So there's been an ongoing dialogue in American science fiction since the um, early 30s, at least, where uh, anybody's idea about how things work is going to be contradicted by somebody with a different point of view, and it creates another story. And if people have been reading all the stories along, then they see nuances in these stories that um, people who are reading the latest one for the first time without a sense of the context, they don't get those nuances. 
it's a sophisticated dialogue or conversation, multiple person conversation, going over time through many writers and many readers and uh, commentators. It's a kind of a beautiful thing. And, and it's one of the things that being part of the American science fiction community is um, it has its problems, its limitations, but it also has these aesthetic rewards and advantages and a certain sophistication that you can't get when you're when you have a uh, a culture that doesn't remember its its previous acts or that kind of thing. The history of science fiction itself is also interesting and filled with politics, isn't it? Yes, um, it, it's uh, partly it's been um, an early uh, example of popular culture in the age of high modernism when there was a really severe split uh, imagined between the acts of true art, high art and the pulp uh, uh, random entertainments of of the pulp uh, uh, popular art. So there was a high popular split in modernist aesthetics that was really uh, powerful, and it ruined uh, the um, mental health of a generation of science fiction writers in the 1950s who uh, wanted to be taken seriously as artists doing good work, and, and I think science fiction deserves that kind of respect from mainstream culture. It still doesn't even quite have all of it, although it's mostly there, and partly that's because of the generation of the 50s who uh, sort of used their foreheads to break down the brick wall, and, and now the whole world is a big science fiction novel that we're all writing together, and people who try to deny the importance of science fiction are like trying to deny the the reality of the present moment itself. It's a really ostrich, re- ostrich response, uh, head in the sand denial to what's going on in this world that we live in. So in a way, science fiction has won just by hanging on to the point where where the world is a science fiction novel. Now, that in itself creates some weird aesthetic problems. If if everything is science fiction, why should there be a genre telling stories uh, set in the future? Um, uh, I think that phrasing it that way answers the question immediately. You always need to set some stories in the future. But the things that we think of as being science fictional from the 20th century, a lot of them are simply current reality one way or another. And so um, it isn't clear why there should be a, a genre that, that discusses only that. Sure. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of novels set in the present day now would have been science fiction had they been written 20 years ago. That's definitely true. And, and they're, they're very interesting as such. What's the... What's going to happen when you fall in love with an artificial intelligence? Or uh, what's going to happen when you can really and truly clone yourself if you uh, fly off to some uh, slightly unregulated uh, offshore island of convenience? These are these are uh, fascinating story possibilities. They were hypothetical and science fictional for ever so long, and uh, they've been nicely explored. There's some good stories about this already, but now. The particulars and and uh, the the sense of how it's going to fit in with the rest of, of of culture are are so bulked up by reality itself that there's really new opportunities for new stories in all these fronts. You really look at life as a as a writer, don't you? Yes, <laughs> I think that's safe to say. Well, it's interesting because your fiction is is rigorous. It it has a real rigorous feel to it. Well, I, I I like that characterization of it. I 
I like uh, Italo Calvino's uh, stories and novels for this uh, sense of a real logical approach to things, uh, logical dreams. And I, and I also like the surrealism and the boldness of dreams. Uh, so it's a com- combination of these qualities. I like stories and I like the shaping of, of incidents into art. I like humor. It's, it, it's funny because thinking about the, the first segment that we did for the, the live show it made me realize that what an outrageous policy wonk and geek I must sound like talking about global warming and terraforming Mars and the history of the world if Europe weren't there. I mean, the ideas I have for my um, novels tend to sound in, in, in the abstract as if they are... Uh, sociological or philosophical uh, treatises of some kind, but really, I only am gravitate to these uh, subject matters because they seem to me so incredibly interesting for making up new stories, very often comedies, human comedies, and it's always about the individuals who are trapped in these situations and are, or who are exploring these situations. And and the reason I, I trope to these uh, kind of large-scale SFE world-changing uh, scenarios is just that they seem to me to make really good novels. So I'm I'm driven from the novelist's aspect of point of view. I'm not. I don't care if we terraform Mars or not. And with the Mars Society, that makes me really persona non grata. I mean, people love these Mars books, and I'm so glad they do. But some of them really think of them as blueprints, as what we ought to be doing right now. They come to talk to me, and they say, "God, oughtn't we to be doing that right now?" And when I say, "Well, God, you know, I don't really care," <laughs> then they they often are shocked and. How could you possibly not care? It's like being a um, an inventor of an, a, a religion and that you don't actually believe in. And then the people who believe in that religion, they, they couldn't be more dismayed. Um, and so they sort of gotten used to me now. Oh, well, Stan, he's our, he wrote our big novel, but he's, a, he's not quite a true believer. Let's give him some slack. He, he didn't know what he was doing. He was obviously seized by God, and the story was channeled through him by the by the Martian spirits, which may and may be true, and I'm fine with that. So you're something like the L. Ron Hubbard of science fiction. No, <laughs> no, we already have L. Ron Hubbard in science fiction, and I don't intend anybody to uh, get uh, pay me money to, to believe that they want to go to Mars. <laughs> Let's talk about the three Californias. Sure. Uh, these were the, the first... Um, uh, novels that I wrote, uh, but especially they were the first big-scale thing where the three books contribute to a larger project. Uh, but it's not a trilogy in the ordinary sense. Um, I had this idea one night driving back from San Diego to Orange County. I went to UCSD. My parents still lived in Orange County. I drove out there a lot. And you could make that drive across Camp Pendleton, the Marine camp down there, that was almost completely undeveloped so that the drive would go from urbanization to undeveloped California coastline to immediate urbanization at San Clemente. It just made me think how strange it was and how Southern California could have had different fates, etc. And one night driving home, I, I thought I would try three science fiction uh, basic themes or tropes. Uh, um, the After the Fall novel, where civilization has somehow fallen. The dystopia, where all the bad aspects of our civilization have won and uh, the utopia where uh, the good has prevailed, and that I would um, start in Orange County, my hometown, and go about 50 years into the future, more or less. I I never like near-future novels to be precisely dated, and whenever that happens in my books, it hasn't been me, it's been publishers. 
uh, on the covers or the jackets. They'll say, oh, this is a novel from 2067, and I couldn't be more dismayed. I'd I, I, I say to the editors, how did you come up with that? And they will have used some strange scheme like uh, the ages of my characters, and, uh, you know, it's it's ridiculous. But sometime in the near future, I would present three Californias where three different things had happened, and there would be one character that magically had lived in all three worlds, the old man, and he's not quite aware that he's had three lifetimes, but the readers are if they're paying attention. And he's had completely different lives depending on which world he's had to go through, which was one way I think of illustrating in novel form that we're not in complete control of our lives, that we are part of history, and that the way history goes is a massive uh, overdetermination, as they say in the postmodern philosophy field. Uh, of our of our lives, and we only have a, a set of choices that are limited by what the rest of society is doing. So I wrote these three books over the course of the 80s, and um, I used to think that it was really only the the dystopia, the Gold Coast, and the utopia, Pacific Edge, that were really quite relevant to the way history was going and all that. But then the first one, the After the Fall novel, is... America is sequestered by the rest of the world for its imperialistic ways and has been surprise bombed into a, a kind of a Huckleberry Finn pre-modern status by, by um, uh, you know, 150 terrorist nuclear weapons all going off at once. Well, it seemed pretty ridiculous <laughs> at the time and, and even kind of an awful thing, obviously, So such that I was worried that the Wild Shore just didn't fit that, that trio very well or was... Uh, an obvious homage to Huckleberry Finn, which it is. And yet, now we've got the post-9-11 world, and and the, the whole idea doesn't look as, as implausible as it used to, unfortunately. Are you a writer who tries to write imagined scenarios so that they will not come to pass? <laughs> well, I... One of the best science fiction writers, Gwyneth Jones, uh, claims that anything that you can imagine will then preclude it by the poly-exclusion principle from ever coming to pass. So uh, if you don't like something, you just have to write it down, and that, that'll that never happen. And I don't know, um, you know, I think that's a, we ought to all start doing that kind of magical stuff about uh, the, trying to get out of this bad alternative history and, 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 uh, We'll write down the right names on the votes in, in uh, November and maybe get ourselves back on track. I don't know. I, I, you know, all I try to do is write down stories that seem to me to be good novels or short stories back when I did short stories. But now I'm very interested in novels. And whatever will make a good novel, that's what I like. How do you know when you come upon an idea that's going to be a novel? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think what happens is that years have to pass and it keeps coming back because there isn't a single novel I've written that I haven't brooded over for uh, some 5 to 25 years and um, the, it's like a pipeline down which ideas are coming and they're in a, a sort of Darwinian competition with each other which one is going to seem more, most powerful at the moment when I'm ready to start a new one and I actually have in mind usually the sequence of, well, when I'm done with this one, I'll do this one. And I usually have two or three in mind that are more or less ready to go. And the rest are still jostling around. Will they be worthwhile to spend a year or two of my life on? Will they sustain a, uh, a full plot and a, and a full texture of a novel? 
And I, now I, these days I'm actually very interested in short novels as an aesthetic form because I've already done the long novel and the very long novel, which I think there, there's the novel and, and then there's the very long novel, which is a slightly different genre. And this is the thing that people don't usually think about or theorize very much is that they'll talk about the novella and the novel, but they won't talk about the very long novel, which is takes uh, five or six or ten volumes to tell, and it, that's a different form. You have different rhythms, you have different opportunities, and uh, formal uh, structural capabilities that it can do. So I think of Proust. I think of Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. Um, actually, there's no shortage. Vikram um, Seth's um, A Suitable Boy, which was published maybe five or eight years ago, uh, is 1,400 pages long. There are very long novels all over the place, and, and some of them, they, they have no excuse being that long. They're a normal novel that's been bloated by horrendous amounts of unnecessary de- uh, dialogue or, or dumb physical detail. Um, I, would, I would, to the extent that I've... Well, I shouldn't say, because most of the ones I would judge that way, I haven't read all the way through, so <laughs> I, 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 sh- I, I can't... Um, list any examples, but many people probably can say, oh yeah, like that one, that didn't need to be that long. What you want is a, is a story that needs to be that long. And then, and then when it goes on in a satisfying way, then you've got an experience that is like, um, it's, it's the most that a novel can do for you. But here's looking at the opposite side of that. There are some novels that are say 150 pages long, and yet they've given you all the satisfactions that a novel can give. Um, a lot of them are by Penelope Fitzgerald, but there's no shortage of those either. And so now I'm interested in the short novel. How did they do that? How did they manage to compress so much into so few pages? And uh, I'm not there yet. It's not uh, natural to me at the moment, and I actually think it might be really damned hard uh, to pull off. But I'm interested now in uh, the short novel as a form. It's apparent your new novel is is definitely, I, I consider it short. I was... Yeah, well, it's 350 pages long. Some people wouldn't think that short, but it's 40% the length of the one I did before that. So uh, I would say that uh, cutting down by 60% is uh, I'm o- I'm on my way, and uh, I will continue to try to not not to I don't want them to be sketchy, and I don't want people to think oh Robinson is uh, slacking off or or uh, getting lazy or any of that. I'm interested in compression and density, and and I want them to still have the impact of my my monster works, but I want them to do it with a, a kind of a density, just to, just for the fun of trying, because I'm so impressed whenever that happens to me as a reader. Uh, a lot of my goals and uh, um, what I do as a writer, is, I think this is true of everybody, every writer, is driven by what I appreciate and love as a reader, because I really have intense affections for the, the books that I like are, are crucial to my life. And and I, it's sort of my religion. The novel is my religion. And I love these books that are good. And, and there are lots of them. You, there's no reason to pick a, a, a top ten list. There are literally lots of them. If, you pick, if you're smart enough in, in your reading time and you follow the, the good ones to, through their complete works and various habits of reading habits, you can, you can keep yourself stocked with more good books than there is time to read them. And I would agree. I, I have that problem. I have, yeah. I have stacks of books all over the place. Yeah, me too. And uh, pick, making sure that you're not wasting time. I, I have no patience anymore for books. I used to be like many young kids who love to read. I would never f- stop reading a book. Even if I hated it, I'd finish it. It was just a rule. And who knows why? Maybe when you're young, you don't have that sense that there's not much time. 
But um, now, if I'm not liking a book, it's gone. And, and not only that, but probably that writer is gone out of my life. I'm very unfair that way. And I, I this is something as a writer that I keep really strong sense of. I don't want anybody... Um, uh, I, w- I wouldn't want anybody to think, oh, that's a second-rate effort by that writer or that, that in that one they weren't being serious. I want every one of them to be potentially something that someone will love. Now, having said that, I, I know that my books all have a pretty high negative. In other words, there's a there's a fairly a strong vocal minority, I hope it's a minority, of readers who, uh, for one reason or another, the, the things that I do in my books that make them individual just uh, cuts against the grain of what people think books are capable of. I mean, it, it, what can I say? I, 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 I know, I'm aware of a, a fairly strong, almost allergic reaction against my books in certain quarters, but what I have to do is just say, that's life. Um, I've got people who like the books. It's obviously meant a lot to them, and I began to think, you can't please everybody, and all you can do is try to please yourself and then hope there's a crowd that goes with you. Could you talk a bit about what started you writing? Well, it was reading. I'm certain of that. I, I just have always been passionately devoted to reading fiction and nonfiction to a slightly lesser extent. But this goes back to when I was about six, six or seven years old. It's always meant the world to me. I mean, I feel that reading fiction gives you multiple lives and a chance to be more than just what your biological span gives you. It's all these other worlds and uh, value systems and people. So ha- having loved it so much, I started trying it when I was young, and I, I was a good enough reader that I could see that my attempts were pretty lame. They were derivative. They were a little bit uh, thin. Uh, this is, I'm talking like sixth grade. And so I'd give up for a couple of years and think, well, it's just too hard, and there must be super people who do that. And then I'd give it another try when an idea would occur to me, ninth grade. It was like <laughs> I can think of sixth grade, ninth grade, twelfth grade of making bashes at it. And then about three years later again, when I was a junior in college, uh, I was writing a bunch of poetry. And that's a good thing for young writers to do because it it gets you sensitized to language and to the phrase, to the power of the line and just what how much impact, uh, um, emotional, aesthetic impact you can get out of just a few lines. And then you practice and practice. And also you can rework a poem a hundred times without killing yourself. And so uh, then I started having ideas, and they are all science fiction ideas. I think that comes from growing up in Orange County and seeing uh, an agricultural landscape turned into an ermine landscape. And so I had uh, Future Shock, as they called it back in the 70s. See, nobody talks about Future Shock anymore because we're, we're past the shock. We're all, we're all shocked. We're post-shock. And uh, nobody can be surprised by the rate of change anymore because we're, we're, the acceleration is something we've gotten used to. But there was a period of time where, where the pace of change was shifting in and of itself, and that's when uh, Toffler's Future Shock came out as an analysis of that feeling. Uh, it, uh, this is, comes from uh, the Marxist Raymond Williams, who talks about cultures create structures of feeling that people live within. And they think they're having feelings that are just like feelings that cats and dogs have. But in fact, they exist within a social structure. So that in the 70s, you could feel like, God, everything's changing so fast. What happened to my past? What happened to uh, stability? And these days, everybody's just like surfing the wave. And they're perfectly aware there is no stability uh, in the old traditional sense that's going to last. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about your Mars trilogy. Manned versus unmanned flight. 
You have us colonizing Mars. Why? Well, it makes the best story. <laughs> um, I guess robots on Mars aren't yeah. as entertaining. Well, now, uh, that's, I, I, I thought about this a little recently for a piece I did for the New York Times. I tried to predict what would happen next in Mars fiction. And I think, actually, that robotic exploration of Mars makes really good sense for quite a long time. So that, uh, and also artificial intelligences could get quite powerful. So what you have are AIs on Mars that are on mobile, ro- essentially robots, thinking robots cruising Mars. And that'll be their natural environment, and they will have been designed for it. So Mars will seem exceptionally homey to them. And then when humans finally do arrive, then there's a chance for conflict in that the the, um, the robots might not actually like humans arriving on Mars and messing things up with their terraforming ideas. So anyway, that's a fiction I will never write because I've done my Mars story. And I think that in terms of the real Mars exploration, that it's going to be more like Antarctica than it's going to be like uh, North America in the 18th century. In other words, they'll, we'll put scientific stations there. There'll be scientists that live there for a year or, or whatever it takes before they can catch the next orbital um, ride home. And that'll go on for many, 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 many years. And whether it'll progress beyond that to the kind of colonization that I write in, about in my trilogy is, uh, I think it'll happen. I th- but I think maybe we're talking about 500 or 1,000 years out rather than 20 years out. One of the themes of your new novels, new novel, is about the rich versus the poor, the income gap. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true that's in the background. Um well, uh, you know, I've I've been an anti-capitalist for the longest time, ever since I was a, a hippie youth in the UC system. People in Santa Cruz know about that. Um, and and I still am an American leftist. I I mean, the it's hard to know exactly how to particularize it beyond that, but uh, except to say that there are many ideas that uh, that uh, come out of socialist and communist theory that are just obvious notions of fairness, that uh, you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater and um, suggest that because the socialist experiment was corrupted, attacked from without, corrupted from within, and was a total and utter disaster, that the notions of fairness and that uh, equality and, and income distribution are also wrong. That's been what capitalism, the capitalist uh, sort of... Uh, ideological um, media dispersion has been trying to suggest ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of socialism as a political system uh, oppressing uh, big parts of Asia, the notion is that, oh, well, that means capitalism's all right, and we we win these books, the end of history, that whole movement that liberal capitalist democracies are going to be the end of history and are going to be so great that nothing else has to happen. Well, that's all beginning to look quite ridiculous, but uh, you have to go back to the roots and say, well, what what was good in the American experiment? And there's an awful lot. Can we actually enact it and make it real rather than just um, pay lip service to us while we live in this strange feudal state? One of the ways I put it these days is that essentially feudalism never ended and that capitalism has residual elements of feudalism that are so huge that there's no reason to call this capitalism even. You might as well call our economic status right now late feudalism 
or liquid feudalism, where um, property has been turned into money, but nothing else has changed in the power structure. We still have an aristocracy. We still have royalty, aristocracy, a sort of a management class, uh, the artisans and the like, the people that make things, and then a whole lot of serfs who have to do the the manual labor of making the society go. And... Uh, and 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 that exists quite nakedly and is even celebrated as such. Oh, if only we could all become rich. Well, maybe I will at the Indian casino. Maybe I will at the lottery. Maybe I will by um, becoming a famous uh, celebrity. It doesn't matter what I do. As long as I'm a celebrity, I might be able to score a couple million and then I'm then capitalism's okay. And everybody lives on that fantasy of their aspirations, whereas the reality of their situation is usually a very sharply delimited salary that has no possibility of of growing very fast. And you have no possibility of establishing a capitalist nut that you can then build off of. So that it's still as hard as ever to get from the general populace into the capitalist class, which is a much smaller um, subset of the general population. So we live in a, everybody lives in an ideology, and this is just a definition of social reality. Everybody's got an imaginary relationship to the real situation. And I just think that it's, when it gets bogus enough, then things begin to fall apart. And I think we're, we're there. It's just a question of, of can, we, can we guide ourselves into a better dispensation, or are we just going to have things fall apart? Things seem to be pretty much falling apart at this point in time. Yes, it's a dismal time. Um, and it's not just that we have an idiot for president and we're in an unjust war and it become as bad as the people that we used to rant against. I mean, I don't mean literally as bad, but we had a moral high ground that we've totally lost. And, and um, if you think of America as the world's experiment in social um, arrangements, that it's the country of countries, everybody comes here from somewhere else, and everybody in the world has got a representative in America, and it's a country that people love, but they also love to hate because it's also become the empire that it, it, in subtle and unsubtle ways runs the rest of the world, and nobody likes that. So we're screwed until we devolve and, um, and uh, sort of a um, grand dispersal of our, of our uh, imperial ambitions and, and give people back the, the fruits of their work and their, na- their own country's natural resources, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it is a very bad moment, not just in the theatrical stuff that I, that I like to think of as just the world's big Jerry Springer show, Everybody watches the generals and the wars and all that, and it's like the Jerry Springer show. It's disgusting, but there's a certain awful fascination in watching it. It's it's theater. It's spectacle. And then the real work keeps going on underneath, which is just ordinary people doing ordinary work that happens to further humanity and make people more comfortable and, and uh, get through life with uh, less misery. And that work goes on. That work just goes on and on and on and on. You, you can hardly screw it up. If you have a big enough world war, you can screw it up, or if you have a, a horrendous famine or whatnot. But by and large, it goes on even through the hard times like right now. And So I try to remember that whenever I get depressed or pissed off at the outrageous uh, stupidities of this Bush administration. And also, I mean, what if Bush were to get reelected? Then what do you have to think about the, you know, 55% of your fellow citizens that ended up voting against their own interests and against uh, any kind of sense of decency? What would, you know, that just uh, almost doesn't bear thinking about. So I'm just hoping we have a good November. I agree. 
science fiction is a literature of ideas. How do you bring those ideas and turn them into interesting stories? That's a very good question. That's the, that's the crux of the matter of, uh, of writing uh, science fiction, the fiction part of it. Because everybody's got tons of great ideas. I mean, this is one of the cliches. You know, I've got the idea, you write it down, we'll split the proceeds 50-50. Uh, everybody knows that's not how it works, and and yet um, the how of how do you make up a story is indeed uh, uh, complicated and and somewhat intuitive. But I think you can talk about it a little bit to the extent of you look for. I always look for where I end up laughing uh, when I'm reading a scientific journal and and I'm I'm looking at the trying to look through to the human side of it and I end up laughing because I can see that they're trying to cover something up. The, the human comedy is, uh, if you can find the human comedy and express it, then that's gonna, you're going to be okay because people love that. And then there's the other kind, I suppose, is, is who hurts. This is a, my, my beloved teacher, Damon Knight. One of his story-generating methods was to take a situation and just ask who hurts in this situation. Who's, got, who's stuck between a rock and a hard place? Um, Say you're Humboldt County, and you know that the biggest industry in Humboldt County is marijuana growing. It brings in $2 billion a year, and, and the feds don't like it. It's, it's illegal. Um, I'd say uh, the story of the sheriff, um, um, a Humboldt County sheriff who has got friends in the community. He loves his community. He knows exactly what's going on. Meanwhile, his job is to enforce the law, and he's got all these feds coming in from outside to also enforce the law. Even His story would be the, if I was going to write a Humboldt County novel, then clearly the sheriff is the, the conflicted character, the guy stuck between a rock and a hard place who's going to have to negotiate some really interesting problems in, in uh, not just morality, but in practical, how do I get through the day without getting shot or divorced or, you know, make my friends get tossed in jail or, or break the law or, you know, there's, and so in every given situation, like in my current novel, 40 Signs of Rain, there's this uh, scientist who is, has got financial problems. He's got debts. He'll never get out of them unless he gets into a successful biotech. He sees a good idea. But it's about to be shoved into the public domain where nobody's going to be able to make tons of money off of it. So he thinks, God, I've got to keep that out of the public domain. And so he's the one in, in that particular novel. I would say Frank Vanderwall is the character who is in the, he's in his own particular uh, quandary of should he be, since so much of science is an honor system, should he be unethical in order to get himself out of his financial hole? Interesting. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the science in fiction. You put a lot of science in your fiction. You're well known for it. Yeah. How do you manage to do that and not be boring? Uh, well, uh, people would say I am boring. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I trust I'm not. I try not to be. I think uh, this... this uh, one character you can call on, one writer you can call on to defend yourself that is uh, made Melville. Although this, is, of course, cuts both ways because many people are forced to read Melville in school and they think he's horribly boring. But you And I think the novel can, is a very capacious form. Aesthetically, it can hold anything. And the only rule is be interesting. So it can be laundry lists or it can be a discussion of the, you know, uh, there's a hilarious thing in, in Michael Chabon's The Wonder Boys, uh, at least in the movie, where 
um, the right uh, the 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 writer who is unable to complete his four thousand word no four thousand page novel is has included things like the uh, genealogy of his horses and his dental records and things like that. But the novel, it, obviously, you can lose uh, you can lose control. But uh, in theory, the novel can hold anything as long as it's interesting and it fills in the larger story. Of, um, the novel being a sense of this is what reality is like. This is the story of what our lives are like. That's what novels do. So uh, science is part of that. So I think to myself, let's make it about the places where science is conflicted, where there's disagreements about the scientific results, where there's uh, disagreements in how to apply the science. I try to uh, put it in terms, since I myself am an English major, if I can articulate it at all, it's ba usually in terms that other people can understand. So you don't have to be a scientist or an expert to understand my texts because I'm not an expert either and I can't write above my own level of understanding. So I try to write it at the, the metaphorical level or I try to put into the mouths of my scientist characters sentences that even I myself might not understand, but they are often explaining it to people who don't know. This is a very common ploy, which is simply that you have the character that knows explaining it to the character that doesn't know, and then the reader is like the character that doesn't know. And God knows I've used that a million times, and so have most science fiction writers at one time or another. Um, so I get my science in that way, and I also trust that I myself am totally interested in archaeology, geology, um, cosmology. I, I just think, what's more interesting than that? Is the stage business of how you manage to escape the bad guys by, you know, running through the circus, is that more interesting than how the universe began? Or uh, the, you know, the things that fill many novels strike me as stage business, what in theater they would call stage business, which can be entertaining. you got to have good stage business, and good stage business is fun, but it shouldn't be all there is. Then all you've got is a juggling act, and, and a lot of novels are just juggling, uh, as far as I'm concerned, or they're really sharply circumscribed little uh, domestic dramas. They're not enough. You need more. And really, you sort of need science if you're going to really get... Uh, I, I'm always searching through, uh, how do you explain that? And this is a novelist's uh, question, not a scientist's question. As a novelist, how do you explain that? I mean, what explains that? And then what happens is it bleeds off into the, uh, past the world of individual characters to social questions. And the social questions are, are gooey and uh, not amenable to good explanation. But um, they, it's best to try to take them scientifically and do sociology, psychology, sociobiology, which I love because it's so hilarious. And and those kind of so you that's how I get into the sciences is just trying to do the novels right. One question I want to ask you too is, how do you achieve the boggling the mind effect? It's really something that's fairly important to science fiction. Do you is that deliberate? Is that scaled up, or is that discovered? Oh, I think it better be discovered. Um, if you pay close attention to your own daily life, uh, and I mean, and, and try to live consciously, I guess those are not quite the same, then I think you end up boggled on a more or less daily basis, or at least once or twice a week, uh, where it, it, pure amazement is really the best way to describe what reality does to you. So in science fiction, I think you just try to identify those things that are either future-oriented or are bigger than our current domestic reality 
for mind-boggling. And of course, the bigger part of boggle or is is oh my God, that's big. You know, you lie down on your back in the mountains and you look at the Milky Way at night. You try to get it that the Milky Way is 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 the way it is because so many stars have have actually blackened uh, have lightened up the the night sky. Uh, well, there's nothing more mind-boggling than that. So um, I think that the subject matter of science fiction does lead to those big sense of wonder moments. And you don't have to... I, I think the people who have d- d- pegged their career as novelists on emphasizing those uh, have made a mistake because then you quickly lose the scale effect, particularly when you're just using language. You can only say it was mind-boggling or it was awesome so many times before you lose the effect of that. And and so there are there's a little subgenre of science fiction that is about planetary engineering or unbelievably fast, uh, faster than light things or unbelievably bizarre aliens. And I don't think you can get. Uh, I think that palls quickly. We've been speaking with Kim Stanley Robinson. His latest novel is Forty Signs of Rain. Thanks for talking, Stan. Pleasure, Rick. <laughs>